0: Let's, let's read Nehemiah 5, 1 through 19, and I want you to pay attention to that word fear in this passage, to how it's used. Nehemiah chapter 5, and it should be on the screen, i reading from the ESV version. Now, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards, and now our flesh is at the, as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold back to us. They were silent. They could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations our enemies moreover I and my brothers and our servants are lending them money and grain let us abandon this exacting of interest return to them this very day their fields their vineyards their olive orchards and their houses and and the percentage of money grain wine and oil that you have been exacting from them how did they respond to that and they said we will We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they promised. And I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from this house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So he may be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. It's early, early Pentecostal church right there. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall and acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, that's a lot of people to feed, and besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O God, all that I have done for this people. Mm. Father, I just, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today, that you would free us from the fears that bind our life, that drive us, that that as the good news in the New Testament says, perfect love casts out all fear. Help us to, to see you and your love for us in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's, we've been walking through Nehemiah, and there's all these external issues. In fact, last week, as Nehemiah's come back from exile to try to rebuild this wall, now there's people from other nations around them attacking them. And they have to build with one hand and carry a sword in the other. They're exhausted. They're burning the candle on both ends. And as if that wasn't enough, now this huge problem arises from, not from outside, but from within the very people of God. It's the greatest threat for God's mission for his people is this internal sin and brokenness in the midst of God's family. I have a question for you guys because problems rise up all the time in community, right? So what are some of the ways people deal with the issues as they arise? What are some of the things, responses that people have to, to drama, to issues in community or in your family or or something like that. Ignore it. Ignore it. Yeah, like me with the hummingbird. Ooh, yeah. What else? What else do we do? Anger? Yeah, yeah, we get angry. Sometimes it's just anger and sometimes it's not. All right. What are some other things that we do when we see issues or drama going on around us? Say that again. We start judging people, right? Yeah. We jump on our, our moral high ground and kind of look down our nose. Yeah. What else? What's that? Gossip, yeah. Gossip's a bad one, right? We'll go over to somebody else and tell them what's going on. Hey, pray for Sister So and so, just pray for her. I don't want to tell you what's going on. I don't want to gossip, but yeah. what else do we do? We run. Yeah, how many of you guys have done that? Don't just ignore it, but you run the other way. But Nehemiah, he doesn't do any of that, right? He's not content to do that. Why? Why? Well, you have to understand what's gone on to bring the nation of Israel to this point. You have to understand their history. Because those kinds of responses are actually what had gotten them into this mess. right? Micah was this Old Testament prophet. He lived 300 years before Nehemiah. And he was fed up. He had this holy anger. And and before Judah was destroyed and before the people were exiled, Micah told them it was coming. And he told them why. Look at Micah chapter 2. And he spends most of the book, uh, most of his seven chapters saying this. Micah chapter 2. He says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds, and when the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They cover fields and they seize them, and houses and they take them away. They oppress a man and his house and a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, against the family I am devising disaster. So Israel has a history of doing this already. And that is what's led them to go into exile. God allowed the enemy to come in and level their city because they weren't caring for the needs around them. They weren't dealing with the issues. And then Micah, in Micah 6, 8, he famously gives this instruction. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but, three things, to do justice To love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And those are the three points that we're going to work through because we really see this at work in this story. Three things that we see at work in the life of Nehemiah is that Nehemiah walks humbly. In fact, he takes time to pause and pray before he acts. And then Nehemiah does justly. He confronts the injustice around him with love. And he boldly steps in and does something about it. And lastly... He loves mercy and he lays down even his own rights, even his own rights at the foot of the people, at the foot of a God that he fears. So here stands Nehemiah. It's all happening again. No sooner have they escaped exile than here it comes again. It's like Hurricane Katrina. And here comes somebody to price gouge people, right? To take advantage of the poorest of the poor and say, oh, you want a generator? It'll be ten times as much as normal, right? This is the kind of thing that's happening to the poorest of the poor in Israel. And Nehemiah is overwhelmed with anger, but what's he do? He pauses and prays. Why does he do that? Why was Nehemiah able to walk humbly before the Lord his God and pause and pray? And the answer to that is the fear of God. But before we go any deeper into the sermon, we have to understand that this passage talks about the fear of God a couple of times. It's all throughout scripture. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it's this thing that leads Nehemiah to walk humbly before God. It's this this reason he has to step forward fearlessly in the face of opposition, and to go boldly into the courtroom of the richest, most powerful people of his day and confront them with their injustice. The fear of God is the thing that allowed him to lay down his own rights. It was his motivation. But what are we talking about when we talk about the fear of God? Well, I know Halloween's coming up. That's not what we're talking about. It's not the kind of fear. It's not the kind of horror I experienced when that hummingbird Slapped against the window and fell next to me and shuddered. It's not that; it's something different. The best example I have of it is actually from Katie Carbajal, who posted. Is she? Yeah, she posted this on Facebook, and I quickly want to go through this, but I think visually this sets it up. That's the Earth, and the Earth is bigger than the Moon, right? And if you just keep going through the slides, you start to see the scale of the Earth and us in the universe. That's our solar system. The earth is pretty small. There we are compared to the sun. So everything that we know, everything we experience every day, our solar system, the sun, there it is. But that's our solar system compared to some of the other suns in our galaxy. Right? And wait, just pause right. Go back one. Sorry. That's, so our solar system is like a pixel right there in our galaxy. But keep going. It's crazy how big creation is. That's, that's our sun to the left, and that's just another sun in a nearby galaxy. Was that? Canis Majoris. Makes our sun look pretty small. And then the Hubble Space Telescope began pointing its camera at a small area in the sky. You can see a little dot right above it. It's like, a little, like four pixels. And it's about the tenth the size of the full moon. And it appeared to be complete blackness with no stars visible to the naked eye. But when they focused in on it, and they kept focusing on it for four months and taking in all the light it could, this is what Hubble saw. Galaxies upon galaxies. Just go ahead and click through those. Like, I know those are pictures and they fit on this screen, but if our minds could even grasp how big that is, I, I don't. I don't think we could. I think we just shut down. Like our computer would just fry, right? We can't. We can't even imagine how big you, the universe is. That's a little four-pixel space, and yet God spoke it all into existence. He's inside of it. He's outside of it. I mean, this is the kind of God that could just take you in the palm of His hand if He if He was mean and just crush you like an ant, right? But is that the kind of God that we serve? No, this is a God who's intricately involved in your everyday life. He numbers the hairs on your head. He knows your every thought, your every fear. He gave us this ground to stand on and then taught us how to till it and take care and provide for ourselves, right? But he's actually providing the whole time. The very energy that flows through your body is from God. The very breath in your lungs in this moment is a gift from God. And I guess if we think of it in that way, I guess it could result in like an anxiety-based fear, right? Uh, A despondency. But when we go to the Old Testament, there's this term for the fear of the Lord that's very common that we come upon, and it's got some puzzling uses. For instance, in one place where it talks about the fear of the Lord, it, it links it with great joy. Proverbs twenty eight fourteen tells us, Happy is the one who feareth always. How can someone who is constantly afraid be filled with happiness? Right? Or, or down, the most surprising one to me, Psalm 130, Forgiveness comes to you, therefore, comes from you, Forgiveness comes from you, therefore you are feared. So forgiveness and grace increase the fear of the Lord? It's interesting. How can that be? How can we grow, like the Bible says, in the fear of the Lord? How is it characterized by praise and wonder and delight? How can that be? I love this quote from Tim Keller. It's kind of a long quote, so I threw it up on here. It says this, he says, To be in the fear of the Lord is not to be scared of the Lord. Even though the Hebrew word has overtones of respect and awe, but fear in the Bible means to be overwhelmed, to be controlled by something. The the fear of the Lord is, um, is to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and his love. It means that because of his bright holiness and magnificent love, you find him fearfully beautiful. That is why the more we experience God's grace and forgiveness, the more we experience a trembling awe and wonder before the greatness of all that he is and all that he's done for us. Fearing him means bowing before him out of amazement at his glory and beauty. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that when you fear God, it means you're beginning to grasp your own standing in the universe, your own place, your own smallness in comparison with God. And that's an amazing place to be. Because you aren't just some unimportant molecule, but you're the very apple of his eye, Scripture says. You are the apple of his eye. You have his attention. He's lavishing his grace and love upon you. And here's the deal. If you want freedom from your fear today, you can have it. But ironically, it only comes from fear. Freedom from fear only comes from fear. It comes from fearing something else, something greater, something that is for you, that is not against you. Amen? The fear of God displaces all other fears. The bigger you can see God, the smaller everything else gets. And if you can fear God, then you will be free to see your own smallness. So You can walk humbly with the people next to you. You can honor God with a heart after his and submit to his ways. You will recognize the smallness of other people around you so you can justly speak the truth in love into their life with a holy boldness. And you will realize the smallness of the situations in your life so you can love mercy and you can lay down your rights and move forward in faith. Why? Because the more you walk in the fear of God, the less you fear anyone or anything else. So Nehemiah sees God's power. He realizes God's grace and full of fear for God. What does he do? The first thing he does is he pauses and prays. He doesn't just rush off in his anger, call a meeting. He doesn't fire off an email to his counselor, right? Full of angry words and half sentences. He pauses, gathers his thoughts. He takes counsel in himself. The Hebrew literally means my heart consulted within me. Nehemiah paused, took a deep breath. I mean, I wish more of us did this. Right? And not just with anger, but with any emotions. I, I, did anybody go to the fair in the last couple of years? And you walk through the barn, right? And there's the new slicer. It's the most amazing slicer ever. You can make french fries faster than McDonald's with this slicer. <laughs> You can cut carrots with cool, fancy little ribbons with this slicer, and today it can be yours for the low price of $49.99. But wait, there's more. (laughs) Today, if you buy it, we're also going to throw in three more slicers (laughs) because they're mass-produced in some unknown country, and we can just give them away. We just want your money, right? This This is sales. It's how it works. It's how commercials work, right? The ethos, the pathos, and the logos, the, the three big motivational factors that we have in our life. Commercials always pull from that. But pathos, the passion, that's the number one they use, right? Like ADT Alarm Company, you see the mom walk into the kitchen, the little girl, and it's so cool. And outside the window is the guy with the ski mask. And he walks up to the door menacingly, right? And he goes to open the door and, woo, 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 and he turns around and he runs off. He's freaked out, and we're like, "Oh, we're so emotionally caught up in that." We're like, "I need ADT," and he dialed the one eight hundred number right then. Anybody? Our passions can rule us, right? But what does he do? He says, "Hold on, I'm going to pause. I'm going to pray. We could all take a little more time, I think, to pause and pray, to walk humbly before God." to submit our plans to him, to to get his heart on the matter. But I have a question for you, second question. Why is Nehemiah so angry? Is it because he has a short fuse? He loves justice, that's right, and that goes to point number two. God is just, and he calls us to do justly. Look at the state of things. I mean, people are literally starving to death, and their kids are being sold into slavery by their brothers, The family of God is not behaving like a family. And what informs Nehemiah's anger is is God. God hates injustice. I love this picture of God hating injustice that we see in the life of Jesus. Because in Jesus, we can really see what God's heart is like. And it's in Luke 19, right? Luke 19, 41. And it says, when he drew near the city, he wept over it, saying... Would that you even even you had known this day known on this day the things that make for peace. Now when they are hidden from your eyes, for the day will come upon you and the enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. So this whole thing that happened with Nehemiah. He rebuilt. They came back. They rebuilt the wall. Now Jesus is here, and the same thing's happening again. Do you see the pattern? Over and over throughout the story of the people of God. And Jesus, what's he do next? In verse 45, he enters the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus is angry because he can't stomach the injustice of his day. I mean, these people are being robbed blind as they go to worship. Oh, you want to you sacrifice here? You want to give here? You want to come worship God here? All right, that'll be X amount of dollars. And there's not just an inequality economically happening, but there's an inequality spiritually happening. You want to worship? It's going to cost you. Why was Jesus so angry? Why did he form a whip and drive people out of the temple and turn over tables? Because God is righteously angry over injustice, over oppression and disunity in his body. And he's outraged by the abuse of the poor and the needy among God's people. And in Nehemiah's day, who's doing it? The same people that did it in Jesus' day. Their very own brothers and sisters. They're not living like family because they're not fearing God. And Nehemiah is angry, remembering the words of the law and the prophets. I love this scripture in Leviticus. Right, Moses is walking out with the children of Israel, and they're leaving Egypt, and they're going to form this new community. And, and God has given them instructions, and he says this in Leviticus 25. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner. And he shall live with you. Take no interest. It's not what they're doing in Nehemiah's day, is it? They're taking interest. Take no interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor shall you give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. I love that reminder at the end. Guys, because you were slaves in Egypt and I brought you out. Throughout the scriptures, we see it continually goes back again and again and again. God always brings it back to grace. He reminds them, look what I've done for you. You were helpless, and I rescued you. You were in bondage, and I set you free. You were a slave, and I, was re- I released you. So throughout the scriptures, from the very beginning, this story is rooted in God's grace. And I, I know, of course, when we talk about generosity and helping those with less, there's, there's always this person in the crowd. I think every one of us has this person even within our own hearts that says, well, you know, those people, and that's when we're in trouble already, right? Those people. Those people didn't work hard. I picked myself up by my bootstraps, right? I, I put myself through college. I worked hard, and this, this thing kind of creeps in where it's like I earned my stuff. I don't have to share. I I need to charge interest. It's a risk. But God says to his people in Deuteronomy, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of mine hands has produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce the wealth you have. Why should I be helping them? I worked hard for my money. She works hard for her money. So you better treat her right. Right? And God says, what if I treated you that way? What if God said that about us? Well, they don't deserve anything from me. We have to realize that our generosity and our blessing others and our doing justly is a way we keep in mind that we live in the grace of God, that everything we have is a gift of God's grace. And when we take the resources that God has placed into our hands to steward, the life we have, the time we have, the finances we have, everything, the relationships. And what we do is we, he's given those to us to build and to create life and to participate in his plan. And then we use them to completely like, indulge in ourselves or take advantage of others. That's the essence of injustice. The way we treat others reveals how we feel about our creator. And if you're wealthy in this room, I'm not saying you're in sin. I'm not saying you're a bad person. Money is not the problem here. Money is not the issue. Money reveals the issue. What's the issue? The love of money. All right. First Timothy 6, the love of money is the root of all evil. And as Christians, we're called to love people and use money, not love money and use people. We're either worshiping our resources or we're worshiping with our resources. See, Nehemiah is called to restore a lot more than the wall. He's being called to partner with God in restoring the people of God, the family of God, the way the world is supposed to look. And trust me, it's a lot easier to stack bricks than it is to deal with human spirits. But full of the fear of God, Nehemiah goes out and he boldly and wisely confronts where they're wrong, this injustice. It's kind of like he's an ancient Martin Luther King Jr., kind of. Little bit. And he says this, like I love Martin Luther King's Jr.'s quotes here um, from Birmingham Jail. He says, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And that's the truth. That's the truth. Hear me, because he feared God, Nehemiah wasn't afraid to speak out. The fear of God displaced the fear of man in his life. And it will for you too. I don't know where you struggle with the fear of man. We all do in some areas. Maybe it's because you're afraid of what people will think, so you never venture out. Maybe you step out and you're acting crazy all the time. That would be my problem. Because you're trying to get attention. Because you love people's attention. You love people's approval. You crave acceptance. Or maybe you're afraid of man because of what you think they can do to you. The way they can control your life. Maybe that's why you always brown nose to your boss. Because he's got, I mean, the guy's, he's got total control over my future. Does he? Does he really? No, God does. And Nehemiah is not a politician who asks what is popular. He's not a diplomat who asks what is safe, but he's a leader who asks what is right. And he boldly confronted their hard hearts and reminded them to fear God. And what was their response? Well, they didn't just repent, but they actually practiced restitution. That's amazing to me. God's people in Nehemiah 5 stopped worshiping their resources and started worshiping God with their resources. So because Nehemiah knew he was in control, he walked humbly before God. He did justly, confronting the issues in his community, and lastly, and and most briefly, he loved mercy. Look at what he does. He gives up his rights. He has mercy on those around him by taking the hit himself. Because he feared God, he wasn't afraid of the situations around him. He wasn't afraid to give something up because he knew that God would provide. He saw the bigness of God. Let me ask you a question. How big is your God? Do you live with a scarcity mentality? Are you always afraid of letting go of things? Because God is so small. Or do you live with an abundance mentality, free to give away, free to let go of everything in your life because God is the God of all those universes and planets and parallel galaxies and all the crazy stuff out there. He's in charge of it. Every resource he has. How big is your God? Nehemiah's fear of God prompted him to great generosity. I have a question. How does our fear of man Or situations limit our ability to be generous to others. There's this picture in the early church in Acts chapter 2 where they sold their possessions. I'm going to skip the scripture. They sold their possessions and distributed to everyone who had need. You're probably familiar with it. If not, go back and read Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. How do you get to a place where you can sell your possessions? to make sure that everybody else has enough. And then in Acts chapter 4, there's this other just really cool summary of what the church looked like. And in it, it says, there was no needy people among them, for as many as were owners of the lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was left and laid it at the apostles' feet. See, their hearts were so overwhelmed by the fear of God Seeing his glory, seeing his grace in the face of Christ, that they were freed to lay down their possessions, to lay down their time, to lay down their resources, to lay down their lives. The the gospel really is the ultimate looking glass to see the glory and grace of God on display. The gospel frees us to lay down our lives because Christ laid down his. It frees us to give our all because Jesus Christ gave his all. And sometimes that means laying down our resources, our our, our rights to our resources. Sometimes, as we talked about in our our group this week, it frees us to lay down our rights to the justice we feel we're owed. Right? Because whose justice is it really? It's God's. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Either it will be charged to Christ's account or God will judge it in eternity. But either way, justice is his. So maybe it means forgiving the unforgivable in your life and letting go of that because of your view of how big God is, because of your fear of God. Maybe it means charging their sin to Christ's account. Or maybe it means laying down your rights to your money or to the time you feel you've earned or the relationships we have. But one thing is true and this is the last big point that when we stand in fear of God and realize that everything is his and and that he's in control and that he's more glorious and gracious than anyone and anything else it frees us to let go. It frees us to let go. And the cool thing is this I, I love this picture that when we let go of what we hold in our hands we let go of the unforgiveness that we've been holding on to. When we let go of our riches, just more like pocket change to God. When we let go and give those to him, what do we get in return? Everything. God is God of everything. He's your provider, not the money you, you hold in your hands. He's your protector, not the unforgiveness you hold in your heart. God is in control, and the more you fear Him, the more freely. You will live from fear in every area of your life. So, as we close this, you could just walk away with the law, right? The law would say, and this, this sermon would just be moralism if, if we just left you with this, that stand in awe of our gracious God, see Him in His glory, and then you will walk humbly, submitting your life to Him, and you'll do justly, confronting with love, and you'll love mercy, laying down your rights and moving forward in faith. But here's the deal. We can't do that on our own. We can't obey that law on our own. We can try our hardest. We can muscle up all the inner like, abilities that we have and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps to try to obey that law, to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. But Israel was warned by the prophet, and they couldn't do that either. They were led away into exile, weren't they? They had an opportunity to not be led away into exile and they didn't obey God. And on our own, we can't either. So what is our hope? I'll close with this. Micah's little book is full of heaviness, you know. He tells Israel, you're not fearing God. You're not doing justly, loving mercy or walking humbly. You're going to be led away into exile. Disaster is coming. But listen to the last three verses of Micah's book. Who is like you, God? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever. Because he delights in steadfast love, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So Micah ends with this great hope. My question is, when did that happen? We know about the exile and the doom and gloom, but when did God tread iniquities underfoot? Just like Nehemiah, whose fear of God led him to pause and pray and confront and love and lay down his rights, I think Nehemiah really, I think his life sums it up as he points to Christ who ultimately gave up his rights. The gospel is the ultimate looking glass to the glory and grace of God. The gospel will bring the fear of God into your life. Because Jesus lived a perfect life in our place. He never did wrong. He always did what was right. He did justly. He loved mercy. He walked humbly before God. In fact, he walked humbly before God every day of his life. If anybody could be proud or think about their own bigness in the universe... It's Jesus. And he did justly in every situation. Think about the temple story, where he goes in and confronts the inequality there at the temple, where people couldn't come and worship God, and people were removed from God through this whole religious system of money changers. But I love this, that Jesus didn't stop there at just driving the money changers out of the temple. But he put that justice, that that injustice to death death, In himself on the cross. And as his body was being torn, at the same time as he cried out, It is finished, a veil was rent in the middle of the temple from top to bottom. It was almost as if God was saying, No, there's no more inequality. Access to me is welcome to everybody. Jesus Christ put the inequality to death in himself. He loved mercy so much, he laid down all his rights. It's it's the epitome of generosity, the grace we see in Christ. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, like Micah prophesied, God trampled sin underfoot once and for all. So today, as we close and and we start to think about communion time, and we we come to a point where as we come down, whether it's in Couples or as small groups, DNAs, gospel communities, however you guys want to come down and take communion. I want to remind you that it's not just about the law and what you have to do, because the law says do, but the gospel says Jesus has already done. And the Spirit empowers us to obey. The Spirit will free you. Because the Spirit opens our eyes to see God and walk in fear of his glory and grace, we're free to see our own smallness and to submit our lives to the plan of God, to submit to his ways by walking humbly with him. The Spirit frees us to see God, so we're free to see the smallness of others around us. And we can lovingly confront the issues around us. And we're free to see this, the moments and situations that tend to overwhelm us, that we think are so big and overwhelming and cause anxiety and fear in us. And we can see how small they are compared to our glorious God. And we can lay down our right. We can lay down and we can give generously of our lives to one another and to the gospel, to his kingdom. Let me pray. I want to pray over you. and and If you will, will you just stand with me as we pray? Father, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts that we would see how big You really are. Thank you that you didn't count equality with God to be something to be grasped, Jesus. Something you had to hold on to. But you laid it down and took on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, you humbled yourself, becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Thank you so much. Help us to see your glory and grace today and stand in awe and fear you. To recognize our own smallness and to start trusting you more than ourselves and our plans. To recognize the smallness of others and to stop fearing man. To be able to speak the truth and love to one another. To boldly walk up when there's drama or issues in community and walk up with the gospel and point people to you as Nehemiah pointed those people to fear in, in, in God. I pray that we would recognize every situation's smallness, that we'd stop fearing the things in our life, because they may be out of our control, but they're never out of your hand, God. Help us to lay down our rights and step forward, trusting God's bigness. Help us to open our hands to see everything as a gift of your grace, God, to see your grace like flowing through our lives in tangible ways, like the money that flows in and out of our bank account or the, the, the energy that flows in and out of our body causing us to rest and work and, and the, the breath that we're even breathing rhythmically right now. God, help us to look at everything in our life and remember that it's yours, that you've called us to steward it so that we can freely lay down our rights and our lives to you for your cause. I ask that you'd have your way in us today, God. Give us a freedom from fear because we see you in your glory, in your grandeur. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.